Last week, Deacon Kevin asked us a question. Are you willing to change your life for Christ? Our text this morning from the Gospel of Matthew 16 and Romans 12 gives us a glimpse of what happens when we answer yes. And it's not easy, but together we will look for the word of hope, the good news found in our passages. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, even when the way is difficult, strengthen us to answer your call to follow wherever you lead, knowing that you ask us to walk nowhere you haven't first gone. As we explore the scriptures this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be glorifying to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let me introduce you to an astrometric binary, probably not something you expected to hear this morning. An astrometric binary is a double star system where one of the members is invisible or almost invisible to our scientific instruments. The most well-known is Sirius, the dog star, which currently you can see in the eastern sky just before dawn. It is the brightest star in the sky, bar none. It is the, the only thing brighter is the sun. Sirius is bright, but it's not a lone star. It actually has an invisible twin. Its pair, which I'm dubbing little Sirius, is a white dwarf, a star that is extremely small. Now when I say small, I'm saying small relative to the universe. It's compact and it's heavier than our sun, yet it's scrunched into the size of our earth. Let me say that again. It's the size of our earth, but it's heavier than our sun. And it's so dense, it packs a huge gravitational pull. It is a giant, even in its smallness, in gravitational strength. The only way we can see the smaller star is because of its effect on its larger partner. Big Sirius wobbles as it goes about its orbit every so often. And whenever it comes closer to little Sirius, wobbles ever so slightly, but enough to be noticed by observant folk. It took 80 years of patient, tedious observation to notice the fact that there was some unseen force affecting Big Sirius. We knew it was there in the 1800s, but our technology hadn't developed, so we couldn't actually visually see it. Now we can. So why am I talking astronomy? Because as Big Sirius wobbles under Little Sirius's influence, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, wobble in the eyes of the world. They make choices and live in ways that may not make sense to those watching because the partner, God, is unseen. People saw Jesus but didn't understand who he was and the strong gravitational pull that he had on the lives of the disciples. Matthew has set the stage in his gospel in these first 16 chapters before our text this morning 
describing disciples who leave behind jobs and fishing boats and tax collecting and following Jesus at the drop of a hat. Peter, formerly known as Simon, drops his nets with his brother Andrew and follows without a backward glance when Jesus says, follow me. To everyone around Peter, this might have seemed not like a wobble, but a, a huge gravitational earthquake, upending his life. But things started to happen, and God's gravitational pull was breaking in everywhere, in lives all around Peter and the disciples, healings and wonders and preaching and crowds and feedings, heady and exhilarating. Peter even got to briefly, very briefly, walk on water. But suddenly, things shifted. John the Baptist was beheaded. And that all brought this to become really serious all of a sudden. Death was on the minds of the disciples. Peter might have gotten his new name for recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah. We heard about that in last week's passage. But exactly what that meant was a mystery to him and to his fellow comrades. In our text today, Jesus begins to prepare his followers for what is coming. He doesn't pull any punches. Suffering, death, resurrection. Peter hears the first two, suffering and death, and misses the third, resurrection. He stumbles at death, and he misses life. Jesus' death is a stumbling block for many of his followers. We can be forgiven for missing everything Jesus says because we trip at that famous line, Get behind me, Satan. I know when I read that passage, I zero in on that. Poor Peter. That could not have been easy to hear. But let's back up and see what leads to Jesus' shocking statement. Peter gets snared on the thought of losing his teacher, his friend, a person he loves and respects, and has hoped for all of his life a person who does amazing things, who thinks, who Peter thinks is going to save Israel from Roman occupation and oppression. But even more than what he hears Jesus saying about his death, Peter is also following Jesus. And if Jesus is killed, that could mean suffering and death is in Peter's future too. So Peter stumbles at death and misses life. So Peter takes Jesus in hand and leads him away. In the Greek, the implication is Jesus must follow Peter into this conversation. And then Peter rebukes Jesus, a word that is often used about Jesus' own Actions of admonishing the disciples, religious leaders, and even demons. So it's a role reversal. Peter takes on the role of teacher and places Jesus in the role of follower. Peter stops following Jesus and tries to coerce Jesus to follow him. 
is pretty serious. What is Jesus' response? Jesus confronts Peter and calls him a stumbling block. I'll get to the part about get behind me, Satan, in just a moment. But Peter is called a stumbling block. And that is interesting because that Greek word, scandalon, it's the same word we get the word scandal from. It also means a snare or a baited trap. Throughout scripture, there are two things that are described as stumbling blocks. The first kind is a stumbling block of things that take a person away from God. The other kind of stumbling block is Jesus himself. Jesus is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. That's from 1 Peter 2.8. Why is this? Jesus' whole life is a scandal in the eyes of the people around him. His way of living and loving turns the world upside down. Huge gravitational influence, scandalizing everyone, even at times his own followers. Jesus claiming to be God in the flesh. Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and others considered unworthy and unclean, touching lepers. Jesus teaching with authority. Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Jesus dying on a criminal's cross. Scandalous. So Peter, he's not this kind of stumbling block because he's not Jesus. So if he's not that kind of stumbling block, he's the other kind. The kind that make people stumble on their way to God. And there is only one other creature in Matthew's gospel that tries to get Jesus to stumble. And that is Satan. In Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus three times, trying to snare, trying to trap Jesus. He encourages him to make bread, to feed his hunger. He encourages him to test God. And he encourages him to worship Satan in order to have control over all the power in the world. Each time Jesus responds with scripture and a clear no, he will not follow Satan's lead. He will not stumble. So now Peter, in our passage, is speaking in the same way. The way of the adversary, which is what Satan means in Aramaic. Jesus tells the adversary to depart and Peter to stop being a stumbling block for him. The next lines of our passage are for all disciples and all followers of Jesus. Kind of a reminder of what this means. And they're not easy to hear and they wouldn't have been easy to hear for Jesus' followers either. We get snared by Peter's drama that miss what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do. Rather than calling his disciples to death, he's inviting them to follow him into life. True, vibrant, everlasting life. Jesus was called to suffer and die, but on the third day, he was going to be raised. Whatever Jesus calls us to, whatever Jesus called his disciples to, he does first. He took up his cross first. He lost his life first. 
in order to gain true life for the whole world. And he rose to life first. Something that we can look forward to. Jesus didn't just tell his disciples to take up their cross and follow. He showed them by his own life how to do it, by how he lived. And so, just as he called his first disciples, he is calling us to follow him in all of the scariness and the uncertainty of life, even follow him into death. But he shows us that death is not the end. Life is. Death is not the end. Life is. This is our word of hope for today. This is good news. You might remember, though, previously in Matthew 11, a few weeks back in the lectionary cycle, hearing these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how do these comforting words of Jesus square with his call to pick up our cross? So let me tell you a story, kind of a parable. Once upon a time, there was a woman convinced that her cross was heavier than all those around her. And she prayed that she might be given the ability to choose her own cross. And that night as she slept, she dreamed of entering a room where countless crosses were stored, leaning up against the wall, on the floor. And each one, small or large or medium-sized, ornate ones or plain ones, all different shapes and sizes. Each one was unique. And so she wandered about the room and at first she found a really small one and it was very ornate, it was gold and it had jewels on it. And she thought, oh, this one is beautiful and this one is small and this one will be easy for me to wear. And she tried to pick it up and realized that she couldn't lift it. And so then she found another one and it was covered with flowers and vines and it was beautiful, growing and full of life. And she thought, this one is lovely, I can have this one. And when she tried to pick it up, she found that there were thorns hiding amidst the vines that pierced her hands. And so she put it back down. And then finally, looking and trying all of the different many crosses, each with some element that just made it impossible for her to carry it, she found a, a really plain cross. It had a few words of love carved in it, and she lifted it, and it seemed to fit. It seemed to be the lightest of, of all and the easiest to carry of all the other ones that she had tried. And when she chose it, and when she embraced it, she realized immediately it was her cross, her original cross. And she realized then that some crosses that people carried seemed small and ornate, but actually were extremely heavy. And other crosses that people carried seemed lovely and full of flowers, but no one could see the thorns. And that she knew she could own her cross and follow Jesus and help others carry theirs. 
Some of you might be thinking, though, what does this mean practically? Bearing a cross sounds dramatic. And as the woman in the dream realized, it was really just ordinary, daily, plain cross marked by words of love. And so that's where we come into Romans 12 and get some hints. Well, actually more than just hints. This is Paul's rephrasing of Jesus' teaching, an early church rule of life that are full of words like love and cherish and honor and bless and serve and pray. And you might think as you're hearing this, it sounds familiar, our own congregational rule of life, the marks of discipleship are found all over scripture and all over this passage. So you remember that astrometric binary that I started with. Romans 12 is full of simple, ordinary gravitational wobbles, little practices that over time show that something, someone is influencing our life and choices, someone that the world may not be able to see, but over time and observation, they might come to know because they see the influence in our lives. How we live, how we love, how we walk through life, through life, through death, to life. So taking up your cross and following Jesus could simply mean loving even when you don't like the person. You remember, liking is optional, love is required. Blessing someone who isn't looking out for your best and praying for them to be blessed. Being tender towards someone, serving without fanfare, or letting go of getting even. Taking our eyes off from everything that's on our plates and going on and just focusing on giving joy to another person. Or showing someone you cherish them simply by taking time to remember them, to reach out to them with a text or a call, to check in, even in the midst of the avalanche of tasks and work responsibilities. These practices are the opposite of what the adversary intends. These practices make smooth the way for God um, in people's lives. They don't put a stumbling block in people's paths. They actually point to God. These practices may feel difficult, and they might even at times feel like death, but life is on the other side waiting. So this week, I encourage you to answer Jesus' call, the call he gave the first disciples he gives to us, to follow and to be open to some gravitational wobbles, to move in your life, and to consider the particular cross by reflecting on Romans 12. What is the cross that God has you bearing? Look at the congregational marks of discipleship. Choose one to deepen your own discipleship and practice it this week, even when it's difficult. Something small, just a wobble, not an earthquake. Please pray with me. Jesus, you do not call us to walk any path that you have not already tread or carry any cross that you have not already carried. You have even walked through suffering and death to life and bid us to follow. We long to see you out in front of us, so give us that vision and a glimpse of the life you are leading us into. Death is not the end. Life is. And may we live this truth more and more every day and in every relationship. Amen.